time we had Brother Mac for a while, and then we had Jeremy for a while, and then we had Brother Gary by the time I left there. But in between Mac or Jeremy or Brother Gary, Brother Bill would lead the music. And after a song like that, I remember one time he made the comment after someone sang a song, he said, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. I think Bill used to say that. And so thank you, ladies and, and gentlemen, all y'all, for being here. If you would, please, turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we've, we've talked about how the disciples have engaged the opportunists. We've talked about how the, the disciples have explained the miracle. Well, today, the disciples answer the opposition. It, I told you earlier on when we got into the book of Acts, as we walk through the book of Acts, it's real interesting uh, over the years when I first became a believer and first surrendered to preach the gospel, a friend of mine, Bruce, and I would go to listen to different preachers in different camps. They might have been Baptist camps, but they were just you know, independent, free will, Southern Baptist. We would just go and listen to these preachers and try to figure out their style and different things. But it was always interesting when I... When a preacher would preach on the book of Acts, he always wanted to stick in, he always wanted to stay right there in Acts chapter 2. Because everybody wants the day of Pentecost, right? Everybody wants our big revival. But what we'll find out this morning is in the midst of that day of Pentecost and revival and the birth of the church and, and, and different things, we're going to see as we walk through the book of Acts, the gospel, just as it did in the, in the gospel uh, letters, every time the gospel is preached, it always produces revival or rejection, uh, either a great response of receptivity or a great response of resistance. It always does. And if you were to read the, the Apostle Paul's epistles and, and, and all the New Testament, that's a common response. Either someone's going to receive it or they're going to reject it. Now, in this case, we're going to find out that Peter and John have been there in that temple for quite some time. They, they had healed a man, and in Jesus' name, Jesus had healed a man, and, and the man walked into the temple with them and began to praise God. And, and last week, as they explained the miracle, they were trying to explain to him that it's not us, it was Jesus, and this man believed on Jesus, and this man was testifying that his life was changed. And, and all of a sudden, by the time we get in this morning, uh, the, the Sadducees and the, and, and the guard kind of step in there. They get drawn into this, this, uh, this event, but not so much like the people did to say, what's happened? How did this happen? They're there to probably really question or to resist what's going on. And we're going to see them, uh, see Peter and John find opposition. Now, in this case, at the end of this opposition, they're just kind of go off on their way. But we'll see another day where they get whipped, but they still rejoice. They still rejoice. And one thing I've found out over the years is that uh, because I, when I've been a preacher, I've also worked in the world where I've had to be bivocational. Uh, I have found sometimes, at least in my past experience, sometimes greater opposition within the church than I did there in the shop. Because at least in the shop, they just thought I was a real person, had a real belief, and they just let me do my thing. But, but it's just kind of interesting that here they are in the temple, the temple where people go to worship the one and only true God, and that's where they find the opposition. That's where they find the opposition. I'd like you to turn to, to Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 5 through 7 if you want to stand for the reading of God's word, and then I'll open us in a word of prayer. 
Acts chapter 4, verse 5 through 7. We'll be walking through verse 1 through 22, but I'm going to read verse 5 through 7 before we pray. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caliphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them, that is Peter and John, in the midst of them, they set them right in the middle, the hot seat, they asked, by what power or authority or by what name have you done this? Let's pray. Dear Father, we come to you this morning and we pray that your word would go forward to accomplish what you desire. Help us to be honest with the text as clear as we can. Help us to receive your word and not just be a hearer, but a doer. By your grace and by your sovereign providence, Father, we pray that you work in our lives just as we see you working in Peter and John's and, and, and many others as we walk through the book of Acts. You've not left your people. You will never leave us nor forsake us. You will give us words to say. Sometimes you'll give us silence and we'll pray. But Father, it will be your fruit. It will be to your glory as you move. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The disciples answer the opposition. In verse 1 through 4 of chapter 4, Peter and John's message is effective. Peter and John's message is effective. Look at verse 1 through 4 of chapter 4, book of Acts. Now, as they spoke to the people, remember, these were the people coming around saying, what has happened? And he said, well, it's because of Jesus, this man's healed. Because of Jesus, this man is saved. It's all about Jesus. And he preached the gospel to them. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. We see in verse 1 through 4 as this story develops, as the church develops. Remember, that's the whole series, the birth and development of the church. As this ministry of the gospel develops, as it grows, as it goes through birth pains, as it, as it goes out experimenting with the gospel, as it develops, we see that that message has not changed since Jesus' day, the day of Pentecost, and even Peter last week. It's the same message. There's only one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. He'll mention it today, a very familiar verse there in chapter 4, that there's by no other name, by no other authority can man be saved other than through Jesus Christ. And we see in verse 1 through 4 that Peter and John's message is effective. It is affecting the people around them, not just the ones that are listening 
to what he was saying earlier last week, but now it's affecting even the rulers, the guards. They're coming. They're, they're all, everybody's closing in on them. It's an effective message. This gospel interested, number one, the crowds because the people were gathered around. It interested the crowds, this gospel. This gospel not only interested the crowds, but it disturbed the religious. Those rulers, those guards that were religious, they were disturbed by this message of Jesus and resurrection. My pastor that I was saved under gave me a basic understanding one time as a brand new Christian. He described a Pharisee as someone who, who did believe in some kind of resurrection of the dead someday. And he said the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. He said, therefore, that's why they're sad, you see. I was like, okay. So there's a little bit difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I mean, that's, I mean, that's all about all I know. But, you know, you think about it. You think about it. If, if I believed in the resurrection, and I do, and you didn't, and all I'm talking about is someday the resurrection, Jesus resurrected, the resurrection, the resurrection, new life, eternal life. You'd be going, when was this guy going to get off this resurrection thing? Because we don't believe it. It might even eventually disturb you. It disturbed these people. Their message was effective because the gospel interested the crowd. It disturbed the religious, but it multiplied the believers, this gospel, its effectiveness. Because it said there that those who heard, some believed that were hearing. And it says by this time in the church, by the time the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, to now, now as God is adding daily to the church, now the church is about 5,000 men. And what it says, that it's always referring to maybe men with women and children. Remember that? Over in the Gospels when he would feed 5,000 men. Well, it meant and women and children, right? So it might have been 15,000. So we don't know what the exact number is, but we see that this gospel message is, is so profoundly effective that it's multiplying. It's duplicating. That's one, I guess, gift that we have from God concerning the gospel as it's unfolded from Genesis to Revelation, the gospel, the redemptive message, never changes. My pastor I was saved under, he did some work, some missionary work for a couple weeks over in the Philippines, kind of where he had served over in the Air Force during the Vietnam War. He went over there to, uh, by, the, by 1985. He was doing some missionary work. And he made the comment when he came back, he had a Bible. Of course, he didn't have a study Bible like me. He just had a Bible. Uh, Brother Bob, by the way, I went to see his wife. Went to see his wife on Friday. She called me that morning and said, I need you to get over here, Brother Steve. I said, oh, yes, ma'am. And I drove to Owasso on Friday before I went to, I can't remember what else I did Friday. Uh, anyways, but I did something else for the church Friday. But I went to go see her. And she did need to talk to me because she's missing Brother Bob after almost 72 years. But as we're talking, she said, Brother Steve, do you need some stuff in your preacher library. I said, well, not really. I, 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 I like to buy my own books. She says, oh, these ain't books. You know what they were? You know the size of a box of a ream of paper, you know, for a copier? Four boxes of Brother Bob's sermon outlines over the last 40 years. I have them. She wanted me to have them. She said, Don says, they'll just, Don will keep them if, if, if you don't want them. He doesn't know what to do. I said, I can use them. So I have those in my garage right now. I'm going to have to go through them and then organize them and put them in the house. 
But I went to see her because she wanted to talk about what we're doing here. I don't think she's going to be traveling from Owasso because she doesn't drive. But she wanted to know how her church was going because she thinks I'm her pastor. And I am, I guess, if she wants me to be. But I think about how this gospel multiplied. And my pastor stood up that day when he was back from the Philippines and he had his Bible, and I'm not, not sure where he was preaching, but he made a comment. He said, while he was over in the Philippines, he said, number one, I did not drink the water. I drank, I drank warm Sprite. He said, you don't drink the water over there, wherever he was at. And he said, all I had was my Bible. That's all I had. And he said, the only barrier I had between me and some of the people maybe there that he was ministering to was language. So he had to have an interpreter sometime. And then he asked the question. This was probably about six months before I surrendered to preach the gospel. He said, if you had your Bible and God just put you, like he transported you from here in Sand Springs to wherever, wherever. He says, you have a message that transcends generations, nationality, cultures, uh, situations, age. He said, the only barrier you're going to have is the language. But once you understand that language, you can penetrate any culture. And you think about the Apostle Paul. He reached all of his known world with him and a handful of men in about 12 to 14 years, all of his known world. Now, that doesn't mean everybody got saved. But he, he invaded that culture. Ask yourself a question with, with what Bible you have, the Bible that you're familiar with, the Bible that maybe you mark up or the Bible you read all the time to find devotion. If God took you in that Bible and just planted you somewhere, planted you in that temple with Peter and John, other than the language, if you were to share that gospel, it would have an effect. This gospel had an effect. It, it, it interested the crowd. It disturbed the religious, and it multiplied the believers. We see right there in that text that when the gospel is preached, God will draw sinners. Now, some received. Some of those sinners received, right? Other ones came and they rejected. But when the gospel is preached clearly, compassionately, and competently, God will draw sinners to that message. And that message will demand of them a response. So Peter and John's message is effective. Look at verse 5 through 7. Peter and John's message is challenged. It is challenged. Verse 5 through 7, we read that originally. And it came to pass on the next day. Remember, they, they took him in that day. But it was the next day that their rulers, elders and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest... Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. They just happened to conveniently be there, right? And when they had set them in the midst, they asked. Now, this is a good question that they're asking, but we also know their motives, right? By what power or by what authority or by what name have you done this? Done what? Uh, healed the man? 
talking to the people about Jesus, preaching there in chapter 3. Peter and John's message was not only effective, but it was challenged. The challenge was delayed by a day. They, they, they had captured them that evening or that afternoon, and by law, they could not <clears throat> have their religious court, so they waited the next day, so they held them captive. They, it was, the challenge was delayed by law. The challenge was official by nature because there's the high priest and all his family and all the other dignitaries. It was official by nature. And the challenge was intimidating by structure because they put them right in the midst. Now, I know their courts were probably designed that way, but there they were in the middle surrounded by opposition. When Valley View asked me to be their pastor, they said one condition that you're, you're the church you're going to will ordain you. And I said, okay. You know, I didn't know any different, so I called Brother Jim Wheeler, my pastor. I said, Brother Jim, I said, there's a church in North Tulsa that wants me to be their bivocational pastor, but you all have to ordain me. When can we do that? He said, he said I promise you one thing and one thing only. We will examine you, and then we'll decide whether or not we will ordain you. I was like, okay. You know, I let Bella View know, and I said, that's fine. We know it'll work out. So I began to pastor, but one of the things my pastor did to prepare me for that day or, or those moments of examination of my life and my doctrine, he gave me the latest copy of the Baptist Faith of Message. He gave me a 1689 Baptist Confession. He said, you take that, you study that doctrine, you, you study your Bible. And he says, then eventually we'll sit down with you, me, the other, the other pastors, the other deacons, and we will examine your life and your doctrine. I was like, okay, whatever that's all about. So I began to study the 1689, you know, for a doctrine, the Baptist faith and message. And I even used that maybe on Wednesday nights to kind of teach doctrine on Wednesday nights there at Valley View. I was their pastor. So for about three months, maybe four months, I studied and pastored. And I got a call that uh, probably late September, I started pastoring that July of 96. So late September, I got a call from Brother Jim at my office where I was a computer-edited drafter and a steel fabricator and just different things that I did in that shop. And by the way, our shop built that hat for the Catoosa Well, by the way. I drew it on a computer. So Joe will be proud of that. A lot of trigonometry going on and geometry. But he called me and said, Brother Steve, we're ready. I said, ready for what? He goes, ready to examine you. And I'm thinking, oh. That's like a colonoscopy or something like that. You know, what's it going to take? You know, what's it, what I got to do? I have medical insurance. We're going to examine you. I said, okay. I said, how's that work? He said, well, you continue to pastor. And on Wednesday nights when you get done preaching, you on your way home up to Atoll Heights, you pull into Bethel Baptist, meet us in the church, and we're going to examine you. And I, I thought it would be a one-time deal. Well, they did that from September to late November every Wednesday night. And this is how it worked. I sat in a little cold metal chair right there and they sat in padded chairs about 25 deacons about four or five ministers and they just threw questions at me questions of scenarios how would I handle these things biblically in a church questions about doctrine what is my biblical answer to those things kind of like what y'all did that Saturday night before I got here I was just open for any question and I met a couple Friday and I, I, I enjoy those interactions I may not always have an answer, but I enjoy those interactions because I'm, I'm social. So I sat there, and I asked Brother Jim, I said, can I, can I bring my Bible? Can I bring my 1689 that I've, that I've marked up? Oh, yeah, bring any notes you want. 
And I mean, they asked me some questions that I never thought of. But when I took my third church, I sat down with those deacons and that pastor as they were helping me go off to the church there in Wagner and live in Inola. I brought a little VHS video of my ordination. I brought the 1689 that I had all marked up, and I brought the Bible they gave me when they ordained me. And, and I said, guys, I'm going to tell you something about these three little tools right here. I said, you have prepared me for things that I've faced in ministry already. You asked questions that gave me a heads up on what I was going to face. There I was in the midst of them, kind of intimidating. Well, here's Peter and John. At least the guys that were examining me, they were in my corner, right? They wanted me to succeed at Valley View. These guys are in the midst of people. They're not on their side. Their message disturbs them. Their presence disgusts them. They would like to do something to these guys. Peter and John's message was effective. Peter and John's message was challenged. God, not only through the gospel, draws sinners, but in this case, God assembled the very situation that they were in. Now, I've been in that midst of opposition before, and I never thought of it, oh, there's a, there's a plot here, there's a conspiracy. I'm like, no, I'm here because God has put me here. And I had to answer questions of opposition. And that's okay. I don't mind being in the hot seat, not because of me, because God orchestrated that. God assembled this situation. Look at verse 8 through 12. Peter and John's message was not only effective, challenged, but Peter and John's message is clear. It is clear. Remember, they were asked, by what authority, by what power, by what name did you do this? That's the challenge. Look at their clear message, verse 8 through 12. Then Peter, and this is important, filled with the Holy Spirit. He didn't answer in the flesh. He didn't pop off some kind of sarcasm. And by the way, I'm on Facebook enough to know that sometimes my, my Christian friends, not necessarily friends here, but I have some Christian friends, their Facebook's just a bunch of sarcasm and actually daring the world to challenge them. Why don't they just put something out there that's true and see what the response is? Because that's what Peter and John are going to do. They're just going to put something out true and responses to other people. But it's like some of my Christian friends, they, they even maybe, I saw one the other day, I know I'll get picked on. It's probably something they just copied and pasted. But I'm going to say this anyways. I'm like, okay, yeah. Just watch what you're going to get on the World Wide Web. And you better have an answer for the hope that's in you is what I want to tell them. But it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now listen, they're in the midst of these people. In their temple. Rulers of the people and elders of Israel. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man. By what means he has been made well. Let it be known to you all. And there was there ain't no secret. Just to let you know. I said, I'm going to tell you up front. I was like someone said, I'm just going to tell you like it is. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel 
that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, the foundation. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name, no other authority under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Is that not a clear message to their answer? Their answer was to stump them. Their answer or their question was to stump them. Their question was to dig at them. Their question was to intimidate and maybe even stir up their flesh to see what their fleshly response is. But Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, gave a clear, truthful, competent, and compassionate message. God's message, he says, first of all, is public for all to hear. Because he says, let everybody hear this. Let it be clear what the answer is, and let all of Israel know. That gospel message was made public for all to hear. That gospel message was performed as a message for people to hold on to, to find hope, to find salvation. And God's gospel message that Peter preached was a powerful message to handle. Peter was handling this message. Peter was rightly dividing the word of truth. Peter was skilled with the word of God because the spirit of God was upon him. One thing I learned my first three years in preaching at a nursing home, yes, at a retirement center, by the time it was all said and done, I did a 9.30 service at the Baptist Village Library, and then I left there, brought my hymnal, my Bible, and I went to the Evergreen Care Center. I was preaching two services, same message. But I found out those first three years that I didn't even know who I was. Because all I preached on those three years was, and Karen can verify this, whatever I was against that week, that's what I was preaching on. Now, it was good. It was truthful preaching. But that's where I was at the time. Then we moved to Chicagoland area. Karen got a job. Well, she was with Amico, but they transferred us over to Chicagoland area. And I had to find another place to preach because I'm not licensed. I'm not ordained. So, well, I'm barely licensed. But, you know, no church was just going to ask me to be their pastor. I did apply at one church in Cicero, Illinois. I mean, we're talking Al Capone's neighborhood, right? Now, Al Capone's neighborhood had changed by the time it was 1989 because there was a lot of Hispanic in the area. And I thought that was kind of a cool and romantic idea. I didn't know any Spanish other than Taco Bell and Taco Bueno. And that's about the only Spanish I know besides... Uh, um, or something like that. I didn't know, adios or something. But I went in view of call that church. They actually brought me, they didn't, I didn't even meet with a committee. I just came one Sunday and I was in view of call. Well, that's just how they worked it. And it was right there in downtown Cicero, Illinois. So I would drive from the suburbs over there and I was in view of call. Karen was going to Grace Baptist Church, but little Josh, they didn't even want Karen to come. So I preached that Sunday morning and I was supposed to preach that Sunday night. And they were going to vote on me. But that Sunday morning I preached, I, probably John three sixteen through 21 or something like that. 
And when I got done, we went down the basement, and we were eating gospel chicken and gospel ham and gospel taters and everything. And I'm just kind of talking to the committee at the table. They're kind of surrounding me. And they said, well, when you come here, like I guess they're going to call me that night, when you come here, what are we going to do with the Hispanic people? And, of course, I'm assuming on the positive side, I said, well, I said, I might have to learn some Spanish, uh, you know, I guess Spanish for a second language. I mean, there was no Babel you know, app, app, app back then. I said, I'll have to learn some Spanish. I said, we might have to get some Spanish gospel tracts and understand how to present them. I said, I, I don't really know. They said, no, you don't understand. What are we going to do with these Hispanic people? We don't want them here. And I just preached on John 3, 16, verse 16 to 21. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes will not perish. And I got done eating, and, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to be back tonight. And it sounds like they're going to vote me in. I didn't really have an answer to that. I was like, um, I mean, I'm kind of intimidated because I'm like, I'd have to learn Spanish, but I guess I could learn. I learned English. So, so uh, I, before I left that afternoon... Um, I had prayer with the committee, and then after prayer, I said, guys, I said, I won't be back tonight. Oh, why? We'd love to have you and your wife and your little boy. I said, well, first of all, you didn't invite them. You told me I didn't need them to be here. I said, so I don't know if you really want my wife and son. I said, but listen, I said, if you're going to have that kind of attitude about the very people that live in your neighborhood, I said, I don't want any part of it. I said, I'm just a little white boy from Oklahoma. I said, but you know, I grew up in North Tulsa where they were red, yellow, black, and white. And it took me to fourth grade spring break in Owasso to finally figure out, oh, we're all white in here. I, I didn't have a clue because I, I just saw you as a kid. I didn't care what color skin you had. If you played well with me, I played with you. If you didn't play well with me, I didn't play with you in the playground anymore. I judged you by your character. Well, Peter gave a clear message, and I gave those people a clear message. If this is what you're all about, I don't want any part of it. And Peter was handling this powerful message. Peter said, this is a personal message to Jesus Christ. You must hold on to it. You must grasp it. And he preached a message for all to hear. Peter and John's message is clear. God proclaims the gospel. He proclaims the gospel through me, through you, as the Spirit leads us, as the Spirit empowers us to be witnesses. He may use some gifts and different things that you have and I have, yes, to authenticate the genuineness of what we're saying. Peter and John's message is effective. Peter and John's message is challenged. Peter and John's message is clear. Peter and John's message is authenticated. Whether the religious rulers realize it or not, their message is authenticated. Look at verse 13 through 17. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated men and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, here's another authentication, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. I mean, he's healed. The man's walking. I mean, they can't deny it. But when they had commanded them, that is Peter and John, to go aside out of the council, 
they conferred among themselves. This was their, this was their, their conference. This is what they were saying, verse 16. What shall we do with these men? We know what they need to do with these men. Hey, guys, can you come back and speak some more? That's what we'd be saying. Could you bring some more of your friends? These guys said, what are we going to do with these guys? Because they can't deny that they've been with Jesus. They can't deny that the man's healed in Jesus' name. For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. In other words, it ain't no secret. And we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further, this is their motive, so it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name or this authority. Peter and John's message was authenticated even through their negative uh, analysis. These men, Peter and John, they had a genuine knowledge of being with Jesus. They had a genuine knowledge of being with Jesus. They had a genuine convert of Jesus, this man that had been healed and praising God. And they had a genuine credibility for Jesus. And they didn't want it spread any further. Peter and John's message is authenticated. One of the things that God does, he not only draws sinners... He not only assembles situations and proclaims the gospel, God will prove his saints. He will prove his saints. As you interact with individuals at work, socializing, relationships, you're not going to be perfect. Did you know sometimes you're going to have to look at your coworkers, your family members, and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. No one else is going to be perfect. But even in that apology, in that asking forgiveness, or in maybe doing the right thing, God will authenticate you. And people will begin to watch you and check you out. And what they're going to find out in the midst of either asking forgiveness or telling the right thing, doing the right thing for the right purpose, they're going to find out that you're very genuine and that you're very real. That's what we need to be to people. Genuine and real. Genuine and real might be Hey, I made a mistake. I remember one time working at Nordam, I did something stupid. I don't know what it was. But I went over to a guy that was so adamant about the gospel, but I went over to him during break, and I said, I need to apologize. What? I said, I just need to apologize. I just wanted you to know I'm sorry. Six months later, hey, I appreciate that. And he knew I was real, and I wasn't perfect. I wasn't a holier than thou. God will prove his saints, and he proved Peter and John that their message was true, their message was authenticated. They've been with Jesus, they have a convert, and they have credibility. But even in their credibility, these guys just wanted to snuff them out. So last but not least, verse 18 through 22, Peter and John's message is demanding. It is demanding. Look at verse 18 through 22. So they called them, they brought them back in the midst of them, so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. In other words, no casual conversation about Jesus and no official teaching. Just stop it. But Peter and John answered and said to them, 
whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. You judge that. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Remember, that's what a witness is. A, a witness speaks of what they have seen and heard and know to be true. For we cannot but speak the things which have been heard, seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they put a little bit more pressure on them. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them. In other words, there was just no way they could do this. But why was they could not do that? You'll see it be, it'll be for political purposes. It says, because the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done, they did it for their own reputation's sake. They did it for their own selfish reasons. For the man was over 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. In other words, there was no doubt in their mind. A 40-year-old man was lame, and now he's walking. It's not like he's a little kid, like a little giraffe that kind of gets up to walk when it's brand new born. You know, oh, it's walking. Must have been healed. No, it's just a baby giraffe. Well, Peter and John's message is demanding. It is demanding the religious, the religious rulers had to respond. And in this case, they responded with just, just go your way, with a little criticism. The religious rulers had to respond. The redemptive message had, had a responsibility. It had a responsibility to be told. And the restored man had a testimony. It demanded his testimony. It demanded a response. It demanded them to be responsible to speak it. So we saw that God draws the sinners. He assembles the situations that we find ourselves in. He proclaims the gospel in those situations. He proves the reality and the, and the credibility of the saint. And he leads the flock all the way. One of the things that I've been able to really emphasize when I was a hospice chaplain, someone's been given a diagnosis of six months or less if the disease takes its normal course. And one of the things I've been able to do is use Psalm 23 and teach them that God is leading them, that he's the shepherd. He's not going to let you go anywhere that he won't go with you. When we think of Psalm 23, there's three things that David observes in his life. He says in verse 1 through 3 that the sheep are blessed. Blessed with a relationship with God, restoration from God, and peace and righteousness. He says, but not only are the sheep blessed, but the sheep go through battles. They go through valleys of shadow of death. Uh, they stand before their enemies in the presence of their enemies with victory. They go through blessings. They go through battles. And then he finally concludes in verse 6. He says, but you know what? The sheep of God belong." Because he says, as I look back on my life with the blessings and the battles, he says, surely goodness and mercy has been with me all the days of my life. And when I die, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The shepherd led him all the way. He led him in the blessings. He led him in the battles. And he's leading him into his presence. Peter and John, you and I, as we engage this world, God, through conversation, will draw sinners. He will assemble the situation. It can't be plastic. It can't be something that you invent. It can't be something that we just plan on doing and, and say, God, follow along and bless us. He's going to assemble the situations that we're going to find ourselves in individually and as a church. 
And when we're in those situations, by the grace of God, he's going to give us the power to proclaim the gospel that needs to be shared. And he's going to prove your sainthood. He's going to prove your credibility because he's going to lead his flock all the way. When he told us to go into all the world, he says, and I will never leave you to the end of this age. I'll, I'll follow you. I'll lead you all the way. <clears throat> the disciples... The disciples answered the opposition with words of truth, attitudes of grace, actions of trusting that God is in control of their moment and their outcome. And that's important. As you and I are following God, we've got to trust God for the moment. Oh, wow, there's a God moment. I'm having a moment here. I can share something. But we've got to trust God for the result. We can't fabricate it. I was joking when I said I gave Deborah a five spot to bump up the numbers in Sunday school. But listen, nothing wrong with the humor, is there? Making fun of myself. That's what I do best by just being myself, making fun of myself. But listen, we've got to be able to engage the moment that God puts us in this situation. If it is you're in the midst of something that's opposing, you just got to land in the moment and bloom where God plants you. And speak what you know is true. You may not know everything that I know or you think I know. But you've got to speak to what you do know. And who you know. And use this as an opportunity to trust God for the moment. And trust him for the outcome. Lots of times I tell you stories about how people get saved. And people get saved. Oh, well, that's just the outcome. Well, trust me, didn't they? they didn't always get saved. You know, not at Valley View. But I've been in some deacons meetings that got pretty nasty. I've been in church council meetings that got pretty nasty. And there I am in the midst of it. And all it was is I'm just trying to preach God's word, love on God's people. And for whatever reason, they're disturbed. Maybe it's because they ain't getting us for no more anymore. Because people are coming. People are tapping into what we're doing. And people are excited. And they don't like it that way. That's just been my experience. What is the invitation to the believer? As a believer, we as the church, we will find ourselves in a moment of testimony and the world and the devil and the flesh will bring us all levels of opposition. The world governments could make laws opposing God's work. The world culture as we see it today may make change, rejecting God's message, but we will have to purposely stand together in those moments, stand together doing God's work, doing God's work perhaps outside the normal venue. We might have to use an outside normal venue. I spoke with a couple the other day. They asked about COVID, what I would do. I said, I don't know exactly what all I'd do, but I'd be getting with the leadership, figuring it out. And one of the things I was able to do as a hospice chaplain, right at the heat of COVID, the rule was no more than 10 in a building, right? Remember when they had that rule? And I did a funeral one day in Eufaula during the heat of that COVID. There was 35 people there. Well, how did we do a funeral? We can't have more than 10. Well, I had to preach the funeral about four times. And then they would clean the pews in between preaching the funeral. We figured it out because that family needed closure. Well, if the government makes some kind of laws or some kind of rules, you and I are going to have to figure it out together. 
And we have to continue God's work. We may have to go outside the normal venues. We may have to sacrifice our normal conveniences. We may have to look within and see what we have available as resources. But the world, the devil, and our flesh will oppose us every time. As our flesh, we'll feel pain for the gospel. We'll feel panic sometimes. Sometimes we'll feel tired. And when you're painful, panicky, and tired, we need to comfort one another. We'll have to assure one another. We'll have to support one another. And when the devil, in essence, comes against us and casts doubt, divides ranks, distorts emotions, we will be a people that edify one another through the truth and draw closer through fellowship and look up together in worship. And we will have to stick together. Because the devil, the world, and this flesh is our enemies. The non-believer. Well, as a non-believer, you can only rely on your wits, or you can rely on your experiences, or you can rely on people that you're related to, your relationships. Well, you listen, one thing you need to know is those things are good, but your wits have a limitation. Trust me. I always tell Karen, I'm not the sharpest marble in the bag, but I'm in the bag. You know, I'm not stupid. My dad used to say when I would get ready to go out and, quote, unquote, drag Main Street, he'd hand me a $5 bill so I could put $3 worth of gas in, right, and my little 63 Chevy 2, and I guess spend the rest on whatever. And he'd say, son, what are you going to do tonight? Oh, dad, we're just going to drag Main Street. He says, son, I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. I mean, you know. Well, you know what? Our wits as human beings, have limitations. Our experiences have limitations. And listen, your relationships as a lost person, I'm glad you have friends. I have friends too, but they have their limitations. A lost person, if they're, if they're relying on their wits, experience, and relationships with people, they're going to find themselves on a long rope. This is where I found myself before I got saved. I had a long rope because I was pretty witty. On my feet. I mean, I could debate with the best and talk with the best. I was pretty witty. I had a lot of friends. I was a class clown of 1980, you know. And I had good experiences. I, I was already working, making a good living, twice minimum wage. But I found myself, and you'll find yourself, if you're just relying on that, you'll find yourself on a long, long rope. And at the end of that rope, there will be a knot. And you can hang in there, baby, all you want to, but eventually you ain't going to be able to hang on. And you're going to lose hope. You need Jesus Christ. God has provided you that rope to give you friends, to give you wits, to give you experiences, so that when you get to the end of that rope and you realize you can't hang on anymore and you cry out to Jesus with both hands, he was holding you the whole time when you turn to him. And when you come into him, he'll use those wits. He'll use those relationships. He'll use those experiences to further his gospel. The invitation this morning is very simple. If you're a believer today and you have a need or you're scared or you're panicky, you're concerned about the church, you're not sure where the church is going, I can't reveal everything to you because, number one, I don't know everything what God is doing. I know what I got in my heart, and we're working on those things. 
But the best thing I can do in the midst of that is to come see you, come visit you, have texts, have phone calls with you, write letters to you, to get to know you and know what's on your heart, find out what your resources are, what your gifts and talents are, and then we can put it together so we can have a clear, compassionate, competent gospel going forth in workplaces, in recreational places, in, 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 in any venue that we can find ourselves in. And we have a gospel that transcends time, culture, age, finances, any status you can think of. We have a gospel that transcends all that. Because listen, when it gets deep down inside of a lame man that knows nothing but begging, it changes his life. And when it gets down in the hearts of people on the day of Pentecost, when they don't even know their, the people, people know their language, they're, just, they're blowing their mind and they believe and they follow it gets in the hearts of uneducated, untrained men like Peter and John. It's like fire. It spreads like fire. But it's a fire that cleanses, not destroys. So if you're a believer today and you have a need, as Brother Bill and, and, and Crystal come up, just raise your hand. Just, just raise your hand. And I'll come back and I'll pray with you. Joel will turn off the mic if I need to, whatever your need is. If you're here this morning, he said, Brother Steve, I want the end of my rope. Then I'm going to ask you to let me know, and I'm going to come back to you, and I'm going to tell you, come to Jesus. He's better than a knot on the end of the rope. I know that. Because listen, I was about ready to let go of that rope. I was tired of living, and I was only 21 years of age. I was tired of it all. I wrote a letter to my mom. I said, Mama, I said, the world's got me by the tail, like a tiger on the tail, and I said, it's just slinging me over. I wrote that letter to my mom. I didn't give it to her after I got saved. I don't know where she put that letter. But she knew my life changed. If you want your life to change, come to Jesus, because there's no other name. Give it on earth other than Jesus that can save you. If you'll stand for the hymn number 435. 435. Whatever your need is today, because you know what? I'm not the Holy Spirit, and I'm not going to preach to your felt needs. I'm just going to ask you, if you have a need, let me know. I will minister the Word of God in prayer to you right where you're at. 435. <laughs>